0: Welcome to the RHA podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Professor Robert Van Barneveld, Managing Director of Sunpork and Non Executive Director. <laughs> well, it's great to have you along again today for an RHA podcast. And I hope wherever you are, you're having a fantastic day. I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation with you. I've known Robert for many years in a number of capacities. We have a great conversation about his career, which covers a broad variety of both commercial and non-commercial charitable interests. But before I formally introduce Robert to you, let me briefly introduce myself to those who have not listened to the podcast before. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching services. So if you're actively looking for a new role or you're looking to recruit people within your business, I'd love to have a chat to you about how we may be able to help. Anyway, sit back now and let me introduce to you Robert Van Barnevelt. Professor Robert Van Barneveld is an Australian expert in the pork industry and in particular in relation to pork nutrition. He commenced his career working in various university faculties around Australia, having completed a Bachelor of Agricultural Science with first class honours and then a PhD. He has served on numerous industry boards and commercial boards in relation to the pork industry which has led him to his current role as Managing Director of Sunport Proprietary Limited. Robert also has a very strong interest in supporting autism related not-for-profits and he is currently Deputy Chair and Independent Director of Autism CRC and Chairman of Social Skills Training. Enjoy this conversation with Robert Van Barneveld. So uh, Rob, welcome to the Arrotape Podcast, uh, it is a beautiful, what, Tuesday afternoon here, winter afternoon in Brisbane, the weather's just spectacular, even though everybody's running around in jumpers, uh, we're not used to the cold. Thanks very much for taking the time. Um, Thanks for having me. <laughs> just to begin with, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your current range of professional responsibilities.
1: Thanks Richard. Uh, I have. A fairly diverse range of professional responsibilities, but most of my days taken up uh, now as Group CEO and Managing Director of the Sunpork Group, Uh Uh, but in addition to that I am a non-executive director of the Ridley Corporation, which Mm -hmm. is Australia's largest stock feed manufacturer. Mm I'm a director of the Autism Cooperative Research Centre and as part of that I chair a small start-up company called Social Skills Training Proprietary Limited Mm -hmm. which uh, develops resources for kids with autism. And all kind of very
0: interrelated even though at sort of face value you wouldn't think so.
1: That's true and, uh, you know, we have some projects within Sunpork that are going to bring those two sure. organisations closer together, which is quite exciting in the right. future. Well, mm. we'll
0: talk a lot more about that, I'm sure, a bit later in the conversation, but how long have you been in your, your current uh, CEO
1: capacity? I've actually been in this CEO role since April the 4th. Right. It's via quite a circuitous route because I've, I've come from chairman of the board of one of those uh, companies that we've brought together into the group yeah. and uh, it became clear to us when we brought them together that we needed uh, uh, someone across the whole lot. Sure.
0: And, uh, you know, it's interesting for me because I enjoy talking to people in their first 90 days because often, you know, coming into a new role as CEO, um, it's a pivotal sort of time. But I suppose for you, quite different because you had a lot of visibility on the business prior
1: to, uh, you know, stepping into the role. That's right. I did have a lot of visibility across the business, but certainly when you come into a management role, you get a, a different type of visibility, right, uh, which presents its own range of challenges and opportunities.
0: Yeah, right. So without getting into sort of any of the, you know, the nuts and bolts or the confidentiality of it, um, speaking more generally, did you find that when you came in as CEO, there were a lot of things that, as a member of the board, you just had no awareness of?
1: It wasn't so much no awareness but the priority level changes and um, I think uh, it's a different vision as I said and and, um, not so much uh, a bad vision or a better vision, Um, it's just a different vision and you you certainly look at the business in a different way uh, compared to a director's perspective.
0: Right and I suppose uh, you know a lot of the time is discussion about how does a CEO successfully transition to being on the board. Um, it's probably not completely unique but quite different to say how does a board member transition to uh, becoming a CEO um, of a business they've been on the board of you know what kind of thought did you give to that prior to making the commitment you know what were the things that were in your mind as to you know things to be aware of and navigate through
1: that is an interesting question when you uh, obviously as a director you need to be uh, aware of the the line between uh, board governance and, mm-hmm. and management, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting. You, you're a little bit uh, nervous about stepping over that line to start with. Sure. Uh, but once you get over it, um, you know you embrace it at all costs. Uh, it, I think it actually makes you a better director um, right. because uh, you can see how sometimes as a director. Uh, You could be accused of seagull management and and making rash statements at a a board meeting that have Mm -hmm. a massive impact on on management. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I'm hoping it works well for for both the board and and management in that uh, I'm able to uh, address some some Mm. questions at board level that would otherwise filter down and cause management a lot of grief Mm -hmm. and and vice versa, maybe explain to management that... uh, do you realise when you take that approach, this is how the board's going to perceive that? Okay, yeah. So um, it's uh, an interesting balancing act. Right, but, uh, I'm enjoying the uh, the challenge.
0: Yeah, I you know I uh, I've interviewed quite a number of chairs uh, for the podcast, and when we talk about the relationship between chair and CEO, a sort of a common theme is you want to be friendly but not friends, uh, and that's the chair's sort of thoughts. Well, you know they're there to. Ensure the performance of the CEO. So you, the relationship is not going to be, uh, has got to have that professional distance. You've probably gone from being a situation where, largely as a board cooperating together, there's a good, friendly, you know, dynamic. And suddenly, those people are, you know, certainly not the enemy, but you know, they're on a different side of a fence. It must be a, a really uh, interesting uh, emotional, cultural shift that needs to be uh, managed by everybody
1: involved. It certainly does, and um, it will be interesting to see how it evolves over time, but I'm comfortable that uh, we can make the transition.
0: Oh, that's excellent. Well, uh, we'll certainly uh, come back to talk around some of those things, but I like to start the podcast uh, by going back to where it all began. So why don't you talk to us about where you were born and, you know, mum and dad and what growing up in some of those early experiences in your life.
1: Uh, I suppose I could say my my childhood was uh, fairly mundane. I right. was born in Brisbane okay. uh, in McGregor, so not so far from yeah. here. Uh, my parents were both immigrants actually, mum okay. came from, uh, she was of English heritage and came by India, right. so she was born in India and my father was Dutch so he okay. came out here when he was about 15 Right, and um, they had a, a family settled in Brisbane. So what brought your father um, uh, to Australia? His parents decided that okay. uh, it was time to move from right. Holland and it okay. uh, would have been the uh, mid-50s, so um, lots of opportunity. I think he was an agricultural scientist, so he was uh, working with sugar. and. Your grandfather? My grandfather. Right, so, uh, okay. And I uh, think that brought, brought my father out to okay, Australia. Okay, sure.
0: And so what did Mum and Dad do
1: professionally? Uh, Dad worked for IBM for a very long time. Okay. Uh, Mum looked after us. Right, And then I think when we were in early high school, Mum went back to work and uh, they had a variety of uh, roles um, in retail and, right. and uh, got into retail after right. Dad left IBM. And was your dad uh, on the sales side of things
0: or more of a, a, a IT geek?
1: He was a systems engineer and right. I suppose when he was with IBM, um, an IT geek was a bit of a new sure. new concept. It was punch cards in those days and, right. and uh, evolved through the, the um you know to the personal computer and okay did
0: he have to do the navy suit white shirt red tie
1: thing Uh, (laughs) not so much it was certainly suit and tie every day yeah it was uh,
0: ibm for years they would you know if you mm. went for ibm that's what you had to wear had to at least on the sales side of things and well and so when you say us you had brothers and sisters
1: i have two brothers yeah
0: okay and where are you in the pecking order i'm the oldest the oldest Mm. okay right and uh and so what then uh you know led you into um, having a passion for the
1: agri-space? Mum actually grew up on a a dairy farm so we always had some exposure and during the 80s, we had a, uh, a hobby farm down towards Bow Desert that got right. me a little bit interested. Okay. Um, but it was really uh, by accident. When I finished high school, I knew I wanted to go to university, but I didn't have any real uh, passion in any one direction. Right. And I suppose through uh, Dad's contacts with IBM, et cetera, I, I uh, uh, enrolled in computer science and commerce at university to start with. Right. And then uh, um, found that to be tremendously Boring, okay, uh, and uh, was able to um, change that path by being thrown out of university right. for uh, non-attendance, non-performance, uh-huh. and uh, certainly low marks. Okay, so, uh, when I had. Uh, prepared you know my choices for university I kind of had computer science commerce at the top yeah and all my other choices were agricultural science uh, okay to my mother's horror right Uh, what would you ever do in agriculture right and um, anyway
0: so you've been sort of loosely working around the family hobby farm and you just enjoyed that space yeah right
1: that was pretty much it so So,
0: how far after exiting the computer science did you then go back to unity to do your um, uh, agri qualifications?
1: I uh, transitioned over six months before I could actually get into agricultural science and then uh, enrolled in that and, you know, effectively uh, that was where I wanted to be. So my performance in that area was somewhat better than...
0: Oh, good. And was that at Gatton?
1: No, I could have gone to Gatton, but uh, I decided to do it through St Lucia. Okay. And... at the time, the St Lucia course had a more research base where the uh, Gatton course was more of an extension base. Right. So, okay, sure. And uh, and during sort of high school and uni years,
0: did you have a part-time job or anything like that? Yeah, certainly. Okay. Um,
1: when I was 15, I got a job working in Kmart. Stock room, and uh-huh. then the garden shop, then appliances, and okay. then uh, the front end and uh, service desk. How long were you at Kmart
0: for? Seven years. I was at Woolies for four years. There uh, you go. Good, good uh, breeding ground for the future leaders of Australia. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, it was, right. and
1: uh, I suppose at the same time I managed to uh, I had a job at World Expo 88, oh, working for Suncorp, right. and. Um, I had holiday jobs at IBM, so I was fairly occupied outside of university.
0: Yeah, okay. We're about the same age, uh, I think, so uh, all I remember from World Expo was just uh, lots and lots and lots of drinking, and uh, uh, I would have uh, never even thought to work there.
1: (laughs) I think that fairly much sums it up. Right. Uh, There was a lot of that, but it was an excellent place to work. Okay, and so um, you did your uh, Bachelor of Agricultural
0: Science and then went on and did honours. Uh, so what over about a four-year period?
1: Uh, the agricultural science degree was a four-year degree. Okay. Honours was uh, part of it and based on your GPA over the four years. Yeah. Um, but I was, you know, at the end of that, I was very keen to go out and get a job. Right. Uh, but they um, more or less changed the the rules around okay. postgraduate work. Right. And uh, I was sucked down that path. Right. Mm. To the point where you even completed a PhD. That's right. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm which
0: is a, a, a heavy undertaking for anybody, um, What uh, you, you had a desire at that point to pursue more of an academic career?
1: No, I actually, um, when I finished uni, I very much had a desire to, to effectively be an extension officer for a a government department in what does in that agriculture? Mean, extension that's somebody who goes and works with farmers and helps them improve their okay. you know, farming operations. Okay. I suppose that was right at the time. That was a fairly uh, credible path if you'd done agricultural science. Yeah, um, I was very much sick of being on a university campus. Right. But, uh, the uh, I was favouring the pork industry at that time. Yep. I had a very good lecturer at university who, uh, you know, really. Uh, generated some interest, okay. And um, the pork industry at the time was looking for good students to take on postgraduate work, so okay. they actually took the initiative to significantly enhance uh, scholarships. Yeah. So I think the year before they might have been something like eight thousand dollars a year tax free to do a, a postgraduate right um, qualification. And they yeah. took it up to twenty four thousand okay. dollars tax free. Which at the time was, you know, you'd struggle to find a job that could uh, sure. pay you that much. Yeah, and um, that PhD program was based with New South Wales Agriculture in uh, Wallingbar, which is between Ballina and Lismore. Okay, so a beautiful part of the world. So you off a university campus, I was gone. Right, and uh, I started a research career. Okay, and uh, and so what was it particularly about the pork
0: industry, other than the passion of a particular lecturer? That you looked at and you thought there's opportunity here for me
1: i suppose being uh, of dutch heritage i could say it was genetic right. um partially but uh another angle was it wasn't beef okay i mean that was really where a lot of people in animal right. production in queensland went yeah um i really enjoyed intensive agriculture i thought uh um you know that's where the cutting edge of, of technologies could be applied etc so
0: so did you think back then, and maybe I'm reading too much of you, that uh, everybody's doing beef, if I want to niche myself, I'm going to go towards pork because it's a path less travelled.
1: That was certainly part of it.
0: Okay, so that was a conscious consideration.
1: Yep, and yeah, right. the fact that I was able to pick up that PhD scholarship certainly uh, uh, was partially due to the fact that I'd made a commitment to working with pigs okay. uh, in my final two years of my undergraduate degree. Yeah you know, you you were were going down a path that was obvious and people picked up on that. Okay. And so um, uh, how soon was it then that you moved
0: into the role uh, with the South Australian Research and Development Institute?
1: I had a very lucky path. And if you look at some of the paths of students these days, um, you know, they'd look at this with envy. But uh, I was able to do my PhD with a you know, a world-renowned scientist who basically sat across the hall. Right. And any time I needed him, he was there. Right. Um, And uh, I was able to finish my PhD in two years and 11 months. Uh And I actually had the offer for that job in the March of my final year, which they kept open for nine months. Oh, great. So, you know, finished the PhD straight into a, a research officer job where I had my own staff, no real boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically build your own right. research portfolio.
0: And what was your PhD about?
1: It was about uh, it was a biochemistry in, in terms of uh, nutrition of pigs, okay. so uh, what happens when you heat proteins right. and how that affects how much of the amino acids in the proteins that can be actually utilised by the pig to grow. Okay, so heating the food stock? Correct. Right, okay, and so then
0: moving into um, this uh, development institute, you were uh,
1: extending that same research it started that well i was extending that research into nutrition so okay. they were looking for a specialist nutritionist right. um to do r and d for predominantly the south australian pork industry but so you're living in adelaide at this i station? moved to adelaide okay. i actually moved to the barossa valley so oh, it's nice. not a bad place sure. uh, to live for a few years yeah and um Really, I had uh, tremendous uh, scope in terms of the areas of nutrition I could work in. So okay. we we moved very quickly from amino acids to carbohydrate nutrition, and then into uh, you know aspects of fiber nutrition, and then okay. into rapid analysis of feed ingredients. And a lot of that work is um, being applied and commercialized today right. by the pork industry.
0: And for the less you know technical about amongst us, so uh, what were some of the you know the more interesting? Uh uh, things that you discovered that you're saying are now being applied in the industry? Uh,
1: one of the areas that we were working on used um, a thing called near-infrared reflectance, which is basically you shine infrared light onto a substance and it has a fingerprint reflectance. Okay. And you can uh, calibrate that against known um, nutritional values. Right. So we were able to uh, demonstrate that you could do that to, to predict how much energy... hmm Uh, in a cereal grain Mm -hmm. like wheat or barley or sorghum Mm -hmm. can be utilized by pig for growth Mm -hmm. before you feed it to the pig. Right okay. And uh, when you're growing pigs for a living that's worth a tremendous amount of money to you. Sure. Because uh, you know energy makes the world go around and if you can use that more efficiently you're going to have a far better operation.
0: Okay and so uh, you're with uh, the Development Institute for a while, uh, a few years, and then off to um, Hassel.
1: No, Hassels was you know something that I did uh, while I was while I was there. Okay. It was kind of part time consultancies. Right. Um, gave me a bit of exposure into into Asia. Right. Um, but uh, from the South Australian government, I mean, during my time there, the world changed in in the R and D environment uh, when I was doing my PhD. Um, government departments and universities still had a very significant amount of their own expenditure that they put into into their research Okay. and uh, I suppose the government in agriculture in particular had changed to the R&D corporation model uh, so as that model for research investment grew so university and government funding withdrew okay so after eight or so well, six years I suppose with the government mm-hmm. I was finding all of the research money for my research, and for my staff, and for my salary. When you say you're finding, you were out there literally Applying, shaking hands
0: and kissing babies to get the money.
1: That's right, right and, and okay. I came to the conclusion after a short period of time, that if I'm doing that within a government framework, perhaps I could do that as a consultant. Okay, yeah. Mm, so so that was my decision to uh, uh, leave the government and start a consultancy and, and as a first step of that consultancy, I was able to uh, contract back to the government to finish some of the projects I had underway. Okay, And then I expanded those roles into research management in different areas and uh, um, different types of commercial consulting. Mm -hmm. And so what uh, ended up bringing you back to Queensland then? my family, my second daughter was born very premature okay. and she was diagnosed with autism mm-hmm. and so it was really a decision to come back to Queensland for more family support Right. and I suppose as a consultant I could really live anywhere. Okay, so your
0: wife's family from uh, Queensland as well?
1: Well, well everybody's family right. was in, in Queensland at okay, the time, sure. that's right.
0: right. So back and then working uh, with the University of Queensland?
1: With the University of Queensland, that was really uh, an adjunct appointment. Okay. So when we moved back to Queensland, my primary role was consulting, right. and that's when I started to get involved with the Sunport Group, right? Which was known as CHM at the time. Okay. Um, but I, had, you know, my roles at that time were to do things like manage all of the rock lobster aquaculture research in the country, manage mm-hmm. all the aquaculture nutrition research in the country uh, on behalf of the Fisheries R and D Corporation, mm-hmm. run some R and D programs with uh, with um, the federal government and with South Australian government, uh, started some commercial consulting around nutrition Mm -hmm. and then uh, um, started working with the CHM group managing their science and technology portfolio. Okay, my dad was a university
0: academic so I I grew up in this sort of uh, 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 research-based environment. What was it that started to get you sort of more commercially interested I mean you know there's a world of difference between being you know a consultant in research to being the CEO of you know a significant commercial operation what were some of the the sort of uh, key milestones in terms of developing that appetite within yourself
1: it actually started uh, while I was still with the South Australian government Mm -hmm. and um, I was a young researcher that had a lot of latitude and probably got away with a lot more than I was Otherwise entitled to right, um, and was able to achieve a lot at a young age. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went for a, a review. And uh, what,
0: what do you think it was about you that enabled that? What were some of the intrinsic personality characteristics?
1: I, I um, very much focused on on logic and the outcome. Okay. And uh, um, driven by delivering the outcome. Yep. Um, but. I probably uh, you know i had delivered a number of outcomes and thought i had achieved a lot but i mm-hmm. went for a review and the director of research within the south australian uh, research and development institute did the review mm-hmm. and um, asked me to explain what i had achieved and why i was uh, you know why i should be promoted mm-hmm. and i was trying to leap a couple of levels at okay. the time yeah and uh i thought i'd put a good case forward and then he just asked well if i went and asked a pig farmer at the back of Malala what you've done for him, what would he say? Mm-hmm. And I'm going, oh, well, you know, I don't really do research for him. I do it for the industry. Right. And he goes, well, isn't he the industry? Come on. And he just asked that question for two hours. Right. And at the end, I just said, I've done nothing. You know, I've really conceded. <laughs> <laughs> and it just changed my whole focus and made me aware that um, you've got to understand who you're working for when you're right. doing research. It's not about getting a grant and doing the research and then getting another grant and doing the research and maybe someone else will pick it up and use it it really made me focus on um, what my research was delivering for yeah. the better of the people that were yeah. you know what, what are the practical
0: ultimately funding it the practical commercial outcomes that's right,
1: right. and um, unfortunately there are many 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 scientists that don't make that connection so they will just go through the motions mm. and and in any industry, if they were able to do that a little bit better, I think we'd have a lot more progress on the science front. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the trigger to get a lot more focused on the application of my research, which brought me closer to the commercial outcomes, which brought me okay. closer to the commercial functions.
0: And do you think as a result of that, you know, uh, uh obviously, but earlier than that, these uh, 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 producers... We're saying okay well here's a guy that can actually look at the commercial outcomes let's get him engaged in a broader understanding of our business in order to tap into that practicality
1: absolutely and i think chm have done that very well right you know, through the sun pork journey
0: yeah so what you know so uh, you're you're originally researching on uh nutrition what were some of the you know the additional tasks or additional components of the broader business that you started to get you know a level of awareness and engagement with how did it kind of unfold
1: from a pork industry point of view, um, in pig production, you, nutrition uh, costs represent 50 to 60% okay, of your right. costs. Yep. So when you take on a commercial nutrition role, mm-hmm. A, you've got to be very aware of the R&D that's out there, B, you've got to know how to apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do those two things well, then you can have a big impact on the success mm-hmm. of that overall business. Okay. So uh, I suppose I was just fortunate in terms of the area that I was mm-hmm. involved in, that it had tremendous commercial application and uh and that's how i uh started progressing through the, right. those business what elements about things
0: like marketing and finance and strategy and you know all of that stuff
1: okay well uh marketing and finance absolutely no idea i mean that had to be learned learned via another sure. path yeah um strategy certainly came uh, around um, my experience with research management where a lot mm-hmm. of my job was developing strategic plans and strategic frameworks and, mm-hmm. and that actually formed a, a quite a large part of my consultancy mm-hmm. So um, when you start getting involved at the strategic development level of a business and you have an understanding of the basic functionings of a core element of the business, mm-hmm. I suppose the other components like uh, um, finance and, and marketing start to evolve and okay. Despite my um, uh, lack of attention, I did uh, actually study some commerce. That's right, <laughs> so I had a fairly. So basic at any brand. point, did
0: you think, you know, now that I'm starting to have a broader role, maybe I need to go and you know develop my commercial skills through doing some other formal qualifications, uh, an MBA or anything like that? Was that something that was a consideration for you?
1: It wasn't actually and I, I don't think I've always followed those traditional mm-hmm. paths mm-hmm. and I suppose I don't subscribe to the theory that just by having an MBA or um, being a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors all, all of a sudden qualifies me to be a director or, sure. or something other than I'm uh, you know, fundamentally qualified to be. Mm-hmm. I also come from a background where, um, with your, your science background and... Postgraduate qualifications. You're working as an expert in a particular area, mm. so uh, anything below that expert level becomes very hard to claim as a, a skill. Right. Uh, so really, the progression was all again back um, around outcomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I started working for the Sunport Group, mm-hmm. the motivation was they were in they were paying levies into R and D. They didn't feel that that R&D was being well spent relative to their business mm-hmm. and they didn't feel as a business they were getting anything back. So okay. my, my brief was to go and capture some of that. Your brief from whom? From the Sunpork shareholders. Okay, right. Uh, so um, when I started on on that path, it became very clear that uh, some of our industry-governed money yeah. for R&D was not being spent as well as it could mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that was when we decided that maybe we should pursue the establishment of a cooperative research centre for the pork industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and anybody that's been involved with establishing cooperative research centres knows that that's no mean feat. You're cool. trying to bring many partners together, some of them are competitors in the marketplace, and uh, you want to bring them together for a common goal, mm-hmm. and then go and convince the federal government to give you 30 or 40 million dollars over a seven year period to mm-hmm. go and do a specific piece of research. So. Uh, I took a lead on that and we successfully established the Pork CRC mm-hmm. uh, and I became a director of that uh, on behalf of the Sun Group and mm-hmm. um, really, uh, you know, from there I started taking on more, right. more governance roles. So that your,
0: your successes uh, gave them a level of confidence to essentially give you greater and greater responsibility. Correct. Right. But the transition was... You, at no point were you coming into the organisation in an executive role. You were working as a consultant then onto the board.
1: Now that you mention it, Richard, there's a gap okay. that I need to bring you up to date with. <laughs> I decided um, shortly after we'd moved to Brisbane that I spent a lot of time at work, yeah. at work and I didn't really give anything back to the community. Okay. And I mentioned that my second daughter was diagnosed as being autistic. Sure. So I uh, became a member of a not-for-profit board yeah um, not because I was looking for a springboard but sure. because I wanted to make a contribution uh, to a, an organization that had helped my daughter yeah um, and so I became a member of that board and then I suppose 18 months later I was chairing it. this is autism Queensland that was of autism Queensland sure. and uh, and that was a Baptism of Fire for me because I had no governance skills. Okay. Yeah, So it would be fair to say I right. learned on the job Yes, um, and uh, dodged some bullets on that journey. Sure. But um, got tremendous experience. And so I did have some governance experience when I started taking on more roles within the 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 pork industry and beyond Autism Queensland.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in talking about the not for profit uh, sort of journey as well, but uh, before we get to that. um, And so uh, you're on the board of Sun Pork or the the parent. Pork CRC. Yep. Uh, And at the same time, then you also uh, started your own business.
1: No, I had a consultancy business already. Right. I was consulting to Sun Pork. Yes. My job was to go and develop these R&D capabilities. Right. We realised there was no money nationally. It was nowhere. Yeah. And on behalf of Sun Pork, I led a bid to establish the Pork CRC. Right. So um, that entity started. It had a, a seven-year research program in the pork industry. Okay. Yeah. Um, shortly thereafter I became a director of Australian Pork Limited right. which is the national body for the pig industry. Okay right. Um, and from there and that growth I got more involved in the commercial activities of Sun Pork as a commercial business Right. and ultimately became the chair of that board. Right and PorkScan is also a part of the
0: CRC business.
1: PorkScan was a subsidiary right. of Australian Pork Limited, right. which was uh, it was a, a a startup company, and I was chairman until last week. Right, uh, which was developing uh, carcass scanning technologies okay. um, in light of uh, a big gap in the industry, right. and, and trying to. Um, keep at bay some rather steep increases in scanning fees that were right. being imposed on abattoirs. So, you know, we successfully did that for eight years as okay. well. So and, and are you to blame for get more pork on your fork? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not to blame for it, but uh, certainly while I was on the Australian Pork Limited board, we uh, reviewed our marketing department. and. And the new general manager of marketing came back in and, and pointed out to us that we'd had as an industry, I don't know, seven bylines in seven years. Right. And and that was too many. We were all over the place and, and uh, went back and the one that everybody had mm. the most recognition with was get, more, you know, get some sure. pork on your fork and, and he put that back on the agenda and it's stayed ever since. Yeah, right.
0: Mm. Okay, great. And so, um, now uh, transitioning into the role of CEO and having complete you know responsibility and accountability for the performance of the business you know to the board um when you made that choice to step into that role and you were looking at your own uh attributes i imagine at some point you would have done a bit of a skills gap analysis what what were some of the areas that you identified you thought well if i'm going to do this really well i need to make sure that i either get the right support around me or i focus on developing my competencies in these areas really quickly
1: that's a very good question question uh richard um because you have to uh i suppose if you look at my personality type one of the the traits is you uh have a lot more confidence in your own abilities than you might uh, okay than you otherwise should have so uh in terms of gap analysis i think um this business evolution has been quite unique in that it's grown quickly Mm -hmm. uh, through acquisition and uh, a lot of times when that happens you have a big parent acquiring uh, smaller um, assets we almost came together as equal parties so there was no natural um, systems in place Mm -hmm. that uh, you would then go and apply to all the other businesses Mm -hmm. so uh, with that in mind, um, the area where I feel most vulnerable has been in the area of uh, um, ERPs and, and group finance and, okay. and getting, getting some kind of uh, you know really reliable, efficient financial transparency across mm-hmm. all of the entities that we've brought together. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's my highest priority in the okay. area where I uh, have been seeking the most um Mm -hmm. And so how do you go about giving yourself a crash
0: course in, you know, what is, you know, very complex and uh, involved uh, subject when you've got everything else that you need to do in the meantime?
1: And that's a a good question. (laughs) Uh, I'd like to think after, you know, 10 years of uh, directorships that I have some capacity to understand uh, a P&L and balance sheet and know when to look out for, well, know what to look out for. um, so, I'm I'm not looking to become the financial expert of the no, business. Sure. I'm, I'm looking to have the right people around me that can uh, give me mm-hmm. some direction in that mm-hmm. area, and um, and that can be quite a challenging thing to do in the mm-hmm. finance uh, on the finance side of things. So, um, but I think we've found some really really capable people to help us with that, and I'm very much looking forward to taking that part of the business forward. Mm-hmm.
0: And when you look to the future. Um, you are looking to the future as a, you know a very strong representative of the broader sector, and at the same time you're now the CEO of a particular player in the sector. What what kind of issues does that bring up in terms of potentially conflicting agendas that you are keen to
1: achieve? <laughs> That's a very commonly asked question, right? Um, and it's a consequence of working in what's a comparatively small industry. Uh huh. Um, managing conflict is something as a director you've got to be highly aware of. Mm. But you can't let somebody's perception of a conflict stop you stop you from going out and doing what you think is the right thing. And and to be blunt, there's a lot of things that don't get done because somebody's sitting there worrying, going, "Oh, what if someone thinks I've got a conflict?" Mm. Um, so it comes down to common sense. Um, you know, if you're in it for personal gain, my experience is someone's going to work that out very very quickly, mm-hmm. and it'll come to a, a grinding halt very quickly. So, um, you know, come back to outcomes. If we've got to get the job done, let's work out who needs to do it, who's the right person to do it Mm -hmm. and uh, get the process underway.
0: And when you consider, you made the point earlier, pork being a much smaller industry, say in Australia than beef or poultry, like how would it compare in terms of overall size of animal agriculture?
1: I think um, the farm gate value of the pork industry sits somewhere around a billion dollars. So right. in our national economy, it's a mm-hmm. rounding error. Um, and post-farm gate, it might extend to 2.5 to 3 billion, but it's growing at a reasonably healthy rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of my comparisons around beef and chicken come in terms of how much we eat. And you know sure. we've eclipsed 40 kilos a head uh, per year for chicken. Right. Um, pork combined sits at around 24, mm-hmm. uh, but a vast proportion of that is in the form of ham and bacon mm-hmm. and of that 70 percent is imported so oh, okay. uh, all of our fresh pork in australia anything with a bone in it right. is produced locally right uh, and you can't import that right. from uh, a disease mm-hmm. point of view
0: mm. and when you look uh, internationally at what's happening in uh, the pork industry in particular are there other uh, markets that you look at and you say they're doing things a lot better than we are and there are good lessons
1: to be learned here we certainly look at what's happening in the rest of the world with interest. Mm. Um, pork is the world's most consumed meat. Mm. Uh, our Asian neighbours certainly uh, regard it as a staple. Mm-hmm. Um, you have countries like Denmark that have very—they effectively have what we used to have for wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a single desk almost trading all of the pork out of the country and very significant export markets, and they can take bits of all of their pigs and send them to the most appropriate markets as and when they they require them. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas we have a bit more of a challenge locally where we have to sell the whole pig and we have to use all of it uh, without having that luxury of volume. Mm -hmm. Um, We look at other markets and look at how badly they do it often. Um, Treat pork as a commodity, oversupply, have massive booms and massive busts. Mm -hmm. And I suppose our challenge is uh, go back to basics, see where pork fits in the food chain, use the pig to value add things that we can't eat ourselves, make it into good food, mm-hmm. and uh, and make sure that's contributing to the overall food chain. Mm-hmm. Remember that underlying principle, mm. uh, rather than just treat it as a commodity mm-hmm. and produce as much as we can because we can.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about, uh you know the growing uh, awareness of the requirement to treat animals humanely and I mean you see if I walk down the chicken you know egg aisle now uh, there's uh, a lot of um, the egg producers are saying free-range and then they're saying organic free-range and so on uh, in comparison how does the pork industry stack up in that
1: regard? Uh- it's interesting. I mean, from a business perspective, animal welfare is our highest priority because mm-hmm. um, base, the, the business is based on animals. Sure. And if uh, we don't want to take that priority, we don't have much of a business. Mm-hmm. Um, there are There is a vocal minority out there that tried to paint intensive animal industries as uh, abhorrent and, and uh, inflictors of all things evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're very comfortable that... Um, we have the highest welfare standards that mm-hmm. uh, can be had worldwide and the mm-hmm. Australian industry certainly from a pork perspective has taken voluntary positions um, around uh, pig management that mm-hmm. you know, no one's even close to. Mm-hmm. So um, you know it, it is a challenging environment to be operating in because uh, with increasing urbanisation, the vast majority of people have very little knowledge of where their food comes from. Sure. But in our current environment, everybody has an opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, often in the case of animals, those opinions are, are very poorly informed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a real tendency for anthropomorphism where you assume an animal thinks exactly the same way you do, mm-hmm. which is uh, certainly not the case, but mm-hmm. it does have a big bearing on how people perceive Uh, where their food comes from Mm -hmm. but uh, it is a challenge because people want to know that their animals were reared in a in a happy healthy environment Mm -hmm. but they don't want to make the connection with the fact that that animal had to be killed to produce the meat they're Mm -hmm. about to eat they're happy eating the meat Mm -hmm. they want to know the animal is happy Mm -hmm. they don't want to know what happened in the middle yeah sure Mm. no I understand so let's move now uh, to the autism
0: side of things because you've done some you know really interesting uh, things in that space to that have, uh, you know, enabled uh, a lot of success uh, for Autism Queensland and Autism CRC and and other uh,
1: areas that you've been involved with. So talk us through that journey. It's been an interesting journey because it started with my daughter being diagnosed with autism and that mm-hmm. actually turned out to be a misdiagnosis. Right. She has a, a chromosomal abnormality that um, culminates in a condition called red syndrome. So mm-hmm. you could say I was almost on that path by false pretenses.
0: And was that related to the premature birth? Or no,
1: no, it's it's uh, just a, an abnormality that occurs okay. um, during development mm-hmm. and um, uh, exists only in girls because it's only on the X chromosome. Okay. Um, so with Autism Queensland, I, I suppose that journey um, was an interesting one in that you hear quite often um, not-for-profits are often run by a lot of well-meaning people that aren't necessarily qualified to run sure. an organisation and I suppose the onus on directors of any organisation be it a not-for-profit or otherwise are the same these days so uh, you don't have the luxury of saying well I didn't know I was mm. just trying to do a good job mm-hmm. and um, we really needed to evolve Autism Queensland from an incorporated association to a, a modern mm-hmm. um, Organisation and and I'm happy that my legacy was being able to uh, leave that as a company limited by guarantee that had a lot more flexibility around board appointments and mm-hmm. and overall management and uh, um, you know it was a good period for the for that business mm-hmm. um, it grew and we were able to expand the services uh, across Queensland mm-hmm. but um, I suppose this is where we talk about the synergies between the pork industry and, and autism from uh, my experiences with uh, establishing the Pork Cooperative Research Centre, it was very clear that uh, having something like that for the autism sector would be invaluable. Mm -hmm. Largely because a lot of the uh, services are delivered on a state base, or have been in the past, delivered on a state basis. Uh, There was really no national coordination of R&D. There was no real critical mass in terms Mm -hmm. of funding. and while a CRC you know, was on our radar for a long time as being something that would be great to have, it didn't actually fit into the Cooperative Research Centre portfolio. Um, and then I think uh, Kevin Rudd might have changed the rules and said we can have um, you know, social welfare uh, type cooperative research okay. centres would now be accepted. And as soon as that green light okay. occurred, uh, we started down the path of, of putting an autism CRC together. Mm.
0: And so what, what was involved in that, and, and how long did that take you to successfully get that outcome?
1: It actually took us three and a half years to mm-hmm. do it from the original discussion saying I think we should go down this path. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very different to doing it for an in- industry-based cooperative research centre because you need investment from the industry, if you yeah. like. Sure. Uh, so when a lot of your participants are not-for-profits or charities or otherwise, mm-hmm. um, that can be a difficult difficult task Um, in terms of them uh, wanting to
0: come together synergistically uh, and pay cash to be part of it okay right yeah
1: so that was one of the challenges but um, and there was you know it was also a fairly territorial research environment so getting people to drop those barriers and come together and and Mm -hmm. actually say they were prepared to work together to a common goal was Mm -hmm. a big task Um, and we had to overcome Uh, quite a lot of challenges because even though we had the green light from the federal government it didn't perfectly fit within the the CRC program so it actually took us two years to get them to uh, approve the establishment of this CRC but uh, I think uh, everything we said has been justified in terms of how many successes we've had through that autism CRC in the first Mm -hmm. three years. And, And so you're now Deputy Chair. That's correct. Right, but originally you were the chair. I led the bid. I chaired the bid team. Right, that got okay. it up and running. Um, and through that process, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we had always uh, um, earmarked Judy mm-hmm. Brewer as our our chairperson, okay. given her previous experience in the autism sphere, and sure. and uh, you know she was pretty pivotal in in helping us muster mm-hmm. the participants we needed around the table. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and I imagine that
1: was almost entirely.
0: Voluntary, you weren't getting any remuneration for that.
1: Not at right. all. So, mm-hmm.
0: how do you go about balancing, you know, your commercial uh, interests with your not-for-profit interests? It sounds as though that would have become extremely time-consuming at times, if not for that entire period.
1: Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> but I'm, you're still got to eat, right? I'm hesitating, but right. uh, I wouldn't say that I had a um, during that time period. Um, I was still predominantly consulting. Mm -hmm. I was spending 15 weeks a year in Asia consulting. And uh, it would have taken six to seven hundred hours of investment above and beyond that Mm. to lead that bid and get that CRC up and running without remuneration. So um, there was no work-life balance component. There was no any balance. It was was one of those things that if it was gonna get done, that was the type of commitment that was required to get it over the line. And and how much of that do you think was
0: the heart commitment because of your daughter, um, uh, you know, enabling you to, to maintain the energy necessary to get that done versus just an awareness of you know this is just, commercially this just needs to be successful.
1: Oh, I think it was a mixture of uh, all of those things. Right. I mean, it needed to be done. Um, one thing, I suppose if I had to look at an attribute I could bring to the the um, social welfare sector is, um, you know, if you look at personality types, I'm certainly on the thinking side and I could say that I lack on the feeling side right. and in that environment, it's often the other way around. Okay. So perhaps I could bring some balance to some of those right. decisions and in some cases, mm-hmm. particularly when you're trying to bring a group of people a group of disparate people together mm-hmm. you can't be everybody's friend mm-hmm. and you can't be all things to all people sure. so you make a decision on where you need to go and mm-hmm. then hold the line until you mm-hmm. get it over the line and uh, and in that environment mm-hmm. that's not often that common.
0: And how uh, uh, strategic were you in terms of thinking about I really need to become extremely good at delegating here versus just I've just got to get it done I'm just gonna take it all on and you know um, and carry the load predominantly
1: myself well interestingly for the autism CRC it was much easier than for the pork CRC because right. in the pork CRC I had skills in the research areas that we were looking to get okay the CRC up and Right. Uh, funded for, whereas in autism, mm-hmm. not my area. Okay, so and you, you had to delegate. Absolutely. Right. And uh, so that was, you know, by, by default. And uh, um, I've got to say, we have some of the best researchers in that field in the world in Australia. And, mm-hmm. you know, delegation wasn't very difficult. Sure. And have you found that since you've achieved
0: that other non-compete uh, not-for-profits, for example, in Alzheimer's or asthma or you know, other conditions are, you know, looking to you
1: for um, guidance in terms of how they can go down a similar path? Yes, there's been lots of inquiries on how to do it. But um, really the success of those things is the end user taking the initiative to get it up and running. Uh, And more often than not, those uh, programs have... um, those programs have uh, been driven by people within universities Mm -hmm. who are particularly interested in having their own research area uh, a major part of a a cooperative research center Um, the interest probably should have been um, more than it has been in the last couple of years but um, the federal government took a decision to review that entire program and they've had quite a hiatus in terms of uh, approving new cooperative research centers over the last couple of years which you know if you look at return on investment for taxpayer dollars there's probably no better mechanism to, to get it mm-hmm. and uh, I take a bit of umbrage at those mm-hmm. reviews so mm. they're just delaying tactics to save money mm-hmm. uh, on the surface. Sure okay mm. and uh, most recently now you're working on a project
0: uh, to encourage uh, learning for people with autism and
1: take advantage of some of their unique skills. Yes, we are, and I suppose this is one of the, the more exciting things that I think um, I've been involved in in recent times, and it is really a culmination of all the different sectors I'm in, involved in. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned animal welfare before, mm-hmm. and it is our highest priority. Um, through the Autism CRC, I was exposed to a company called Specialist Stern that originated in Denmark, uh, founded by a gentleman called Torkel Mm -hmm. who has an autistic son and recognised that his autistic son had some very special skills. Okay. And uh, he realised that those skills uh, can be utilised if you can place them in the right environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he started Specialist Stern with a view to employing a million people worldwide um, in IT roles Mm -hmm. uh, with autism. Okay. Um, On the basis that a lot of autistics have very, very good analytical skills mm-hmm. and uh, in areas like software scanning etc um, they really excel okay. so by um, selecting the right candidate and working with the employer they can create the right environment so these autistics can thrive and um, through that exposure I suppose I asked Specialist Stern well why can't we change this concept? To utilise the special skills of autistics who have tremendous empathy with animals, mm-hmm. and Temple Grandin is the most famous example. Uh, there's been a movie on her. Okay. Uh, she uh, is an American autistic who um, has designed a tremendous number of the uh, lairages in American abattoirs to ensure the animals uh, pass through that and the. Um, least stressful way possible. Right. Okay. Uh, she comes to Australia several times a year. She does audits for McDonald's. You know, she she really is uh, uh, regarded as a world expert mm. in animal welfare. So, uh, and she is autistic. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we are doing now, we call it Project Dandelion within our own uh, sphere. Uh, dandelion is special is specialist Stern's logo. Okay. Um, if you put a dandelion in a lawn, yeah, it's a weed. Uh, it's actually a very functional plant when you take it out of that uh, right. lawn and use it the way it could be used. Cool. Uh, so we're we're starting a program where we want to employ autistics with special empathy for animals, um, uh, develop positions in our farms, mm-hmm. uh, specifically around animal care, so that we can um, continually improve our, mm-hmm. our welfare standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking at Housing models, where they might be in our accommodation and taken to work, okay. uh, or where they may travel from home, and, right. and uh, you know, we just think the the uh, potential is, is mm-hmm. tremendous. We're getting a lot of support for this initiative, and um, we hope to have our first employees in place later this year.
0: Well, that is uh, it's uh, wonderful to see, uh, you know, what could be seen as quite disparate. Uh, uh, different pockets of industry and uh, uh, your own sort of uh, emotional engagement with uh, the autism community nicely interlocked to give you a special project do you hope that that's uh, you know a particular legacy you'll look back on with great pride yes very much
1: so it, it's one you know, percent of the world's population is autistic and eighty mm-hmm. percent of those people are unemployed Wow um, Regional communities, uh, it's even worse. Right. Uh, It can be very hard for them to find employment. Okay. But, um, you know, we're looking for staff that have tremendous attention to detail, and Mm -hmm. that's a trait of autism. Right. Um, And uh, we're looking for people that like um, consistency Mm -hmm. and like um, routine. and And, uh, you know, for us, it it seems like a tremendous fit. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to take it beyond just saying we employ autistics mm-hmm. we, we would like to uh, actually quantify the welfare benefits that arise mm-hmm. from from that, mm-hmm. that path and you know in the very diverse aspects of our business um, I'm you know quite certain we'll be looking for for other uh, areas where um, autistic traits may um, be better utilized mm-hmm. and and uh, looking, at uh, developing similar programs.
0: Oh, that's great! And so you know, you're in the role of CEO now. Uh, a CEO's role has a certain time horizon, whatever that might be. But if you look out to the future and say, you know, post uh, CEO um, of Sunport, what are what are the kind of things that you think you'd like to be doing, you know, in the sort of medium to longer term future professionally?
1: I was only thinking about this the other day, Richard, and I'm not sure I came up with an answer because right. I already have a reasonable directorship portfolio. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that that's necessarily what I want to do mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people aspire to it. I'm mm. not uh, quite sure they understand what they're aspiring I hear, to. Yeah. And uh, so I, would, uh, you know, I think going forward, um, when I'm not a, a CEO, I believe this uh, journey I'm on is going to enhance my my skills Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, maybe retain one or two directorships Mm -hmm. but um, uh, I think... uh, I probably would revert to a small business or something like that. I'm, Return I'm, to being a mad scientist, uh, perhaps. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure I could handle the bureaucracy in a university environment. No, that's but true. Uh, you know, that might change yeah. <laughs> over time. I, <laughs> I completely agree with
0: you, though. In that, I would get approached by C-level executives with a huge desire to move to a portfolio career. And it, well, why? You know, why? Why do you want to do this? It? Not much money. It's a tremendous amount of responsibility. Uh, You know, it's tough. Um, It's tough to get the gig. It's tough to keep the gig. It's tough to keep a balanced portfolio. Uh, um, What's the driver? And I think a lot of the times it's because it's either ego or it's because, well, what else am I gonna do? You know, I don't wanna just retire and drop dead. Um, But I I do question why so many people seem so enamored with a directorship portfolio.
1: I think, I think uh, you, you pointed out that it's not much money. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not sure that's uh, common knowledge in terms of the effort involved in taking on a directorship sure. role versus the remuneration. Um, you know, people say he earned that much. If I look in the annual report and he attended eight meetings, yeah, he that much divided by eight—that's a <laughs> lot of money. <laughs> Um, yeah, if you look at it that way, that's a lot of money. Sure. But uh, I think you also mentioned the risk component. and yeah. It's very significant. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, the pressures are getting greater. Yeah. I um, oh, Look, don't get me wrong, directorships on the right companies uh, can be incredibly interesting mm. and you get exposure to things that you would never get exposure to. Mm. Uh, but it's not all beer and Skittles and there no. are certainly a lot of uh, mundane components mm. in terms of just general governance and making sure that... The business is doing what it should be doing hmm now just before we wrap it up because I know you've got a uh, busy afternoon ahead
0: I like to finish off with uh, you know all work and no play uh, makes a you know for a pretty sad life what are the sort of things you like to do when you're not working to keep you uh, you know entertained and your petrol tanks full so to speak
1: I uh, I'm Fairly uh, ordinary at what people like to term work life right. balance, and I also subscribe to the theory that work is part of life, so I have sure. trouble separating the two. But if I uh, have a moment, I enjoy uh, trying to play the guitar. Oh, do you? Yes, uh, I uh, have a fishing boat, so right. I, I like to try and uh, uh, go fishing from time to time. Okay. and. Um, we had a very unique opportunity that allowed us to uh, acquire a house in France, oh, and nice. um, I very much enjoy going. How often do you get over there? there? We try and go twice a year. Okay, and um, what happens with it the rest of the time? Well, we don't. Uh, we didn't buy it to rent it out. It right. actually, uh, I had an opportunity where my brother was looking to spend a year in France. And, okay. Um, I became aware of how cheap houses in France are (laughs) so I thought well why don't I buy the house and you fix it all up and get it established and then we'll keep using it so we um, didn't buy it to put on to Airbnb or anything like that but um, friends and family seem to be making very good use of it.
0: All right, we'll have to have a chat about that. (laughs) And uh, and from a guitar point of view are you an electric or an acoustic man?
1: I'll give everything a go but probably uh, more acoustic. What's your uh, axe of choice? I have a, a Taylor guitar. Oh, Taylor. I'm, that, a, I'm a
0: Martin man myself. Are you? Well, my yeah. daughter has
1: one of those. No, does there she? Go. Very
0: good. Well, look, I really appreciate your time. I think that's been a very interesting conversation. Uh, uh, thanks and have a great afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Thanks again for joining us today on the Aratay podcast. I look forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.